Okay, so then when I come out, everybody, back. Okay, so does it feel like it's been five hours? Just to check in. <laughs> nope. <laughs> this is Malakut time. When when you sit for dars and time passes like that, know that you're experiencing time in the world of Malakut, not on this earth. Alhamdulillah. Uh, okay. So are you ready for the first question? Okay, hold on. Before we do that. Um, um, there's a little bit of interference on the. I, I just want you know I. This is just from from. The way the, the you know the overflowing of my heart. Uh, so you know so far we we've done al Hadid, al Rahman, al Jathia. Um, I'm forgetting uh, um, Al-Hadid, Al-Rahman, Al-Jathia uh, Al-Sajda and Yaseen You see with every surah there is an essential message from my perspective and I hope that you agree with me is that you once you learn the message you can't imagine how can you be muslim without knowing the message and then your relationship with the quran is very different and you feel that it, it is or i feel i feel that that it is my right it is my entitlement to know the message from the quran of course I'm so grateful to Allah that that I'm so grateful to Allah that opens the doors of perception that allows me to absorb everything that have been written through our blessed ancestors over the centuries from all the different schools of thought from Shia perspectives, from Sunni perspectives, from Sufi, from non-Sufi, from Usuli, non-Usuli. And then after absorbing and digesting all of that, submitting myself before Rahman and asking and pleading Allah to give me the insight where it all comes together. And my fervent wish at this point is that before I leave this earth is that I unload, because it does feel like unloading. I always tell them that every time I do one of this, I feel like my burden has become a little bit lighter. But it's still, there are more than a hundred surahs that we have to go through. So it's not much lighter. So I just pray that you pray with me that Allah, at this point in my life, I, I feel as, as worthy as it is, as worthy as it is, that when I teach political asylum 
and I teach human trafficking. Um, you know, other people can do that, and other people can do it as well as I can, if not better. And so I, I feel like it's not a good use of time, and it's not a good use of energy. So just pray with me that Allah facilitates the means. I I was uh, telling Cheyenne and Jannah that this is the journey with the Quran. I have a similar journey with the Sunnah of the Prophet and the Seerah of the Prophet I've spent hours and hours reading through every text of Seerah and manuscript because there are a lot of manuscripts that are not published. And you get a taste from that uh, of that in the halakas I gave called humanistic approach to the Seerah of the Prophet. But I wish I can have the opportunity to explain to people why I love this man. Why, despite all the Islamophobia and all the Islamophobes has tried to do to corrupt the, exact, the, the memory of that great man, why I love this man. Because I believe that if I have the opportunity to explain why I love this man, that you will love this man. You will love this man. You will not just respect or admire, but you will love this man. And I just don't know how, if time continues to be spent with the technicalities of law and uh, serving on tenure committees and evaluating the scholarship of others so they can get promotions and all the things that you have to do when you become a senior scholar, uh, senior academic. You know, you, you have to sit on the committees of others evaluating their tenure files and things like that. And I don't want to evaluate anyone's files. I, I You know, worrying about my own files is, is, is enough. I, I, I just... I, I, Nothing is more distasteful to me than evaluating someone else. So I just pray to Allah that somehow a miracle will happen and it will become possible. That's all I want to say. Can I say one more thing? <laughs> Am I in charge? You're in charge. Okay. You're yes. the boss. <laughs> Please. Um, as much as you like. You know, one of the funniest things that people who don't know what to do with uh, a life spent in books and, and reading, you know, I, we didn't spend money on going on vacations. I, I've... I've I've tormented my poor wife. I spent all our money on books, right? No vacations. She always jokes that we don't know what vacation means. She 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 no longer remembers that word. What that mere word means. And we didn't spend money on cars. We didn't spend money on furniture. We didn't spend money in clothes. We didn't spend money. the only thing really have been books. And people who don't know what to do with all of that, I keep hearing from silly quarters of uh, 
that Khalid Abu al-Fald is a cult personality or is a cult or... And the irony of all ironies is that of all the people on the field, the most unlike a cult is me. Over the, the many years, people have begged me to give me bay'ah and I refuse. People have begged me to follow around and I say no. Uh, people have begged me to start a movement and I say no. I, I refuse to be an imam, I refuse to be a mullah, I refuse to be some type of figure. Um, all I do is offer you the knowledge. What you do with the knowledge is between you and Allah. You don't report to me, I don't even want to know what you do. Don't tell me anything about what you do with what I teach you. That's none of my business and I'm not interested, to be quite honest. I, I just, my, my own liability and my own accountability is enough. I have enough sins to worry about. I can't worry about anyone else's sins. Um, my own failures overwhelm me. So, uh, It's uh, it's sad, but what shall I say? I mean, I, I often hear Allah just don't be sad with what they say, as silly it is. That's all I want to say. No, oh, yeah, that. Okay. Alhamdulillah. You can't take it with you, so why why spend it on stuff you can't take with you? Right. I mean, I think that the, you know, like this surah is so beautiful in reaffirming so much of like the work, you know, the idea that that legacy is so important. And I think this is the first time I actually heard that. I mean, I always believe that, but I, you know, to hear it is something really incredibly powerful. Um, okay, so let's start with the first question. Um, this one actually, like, I, I don't know, I feel an emotion about this one. So. Could the professor, Samalikam, could the professor speak more about how the partnerships within us can lead to perception or blindness? Um, okay. Remember that we are social animals. We are social animals. We we often want to believe that our thoughts and our ideas are our own. But we have a, 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 a remarkable tendency to um, towards clickishness and towards the hazub uh, where you become um, biased and fanatical towards a, a party, a group, a, a tribe, an identity, a language, a nation, and so on. If you remember that and you reflect upon that, that fills in a lot of the blanks. Because one of your most important hizbi, <laughs> one of your most important hazub is that the partner you end up with, you, you, the, that partner often shares a lot of secrets. And often you influence the way this partner thinks about the world and the way that partner influences the way you think about the world. In fact, quite often, 
the the person you are with a partner is very different than the person you are if you are found by yourself. Your your you, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act could be very different, and often is very different. There are things that you might do be, with your partner that you might never do alone, and things that you might not do, but uh, or things that. Um, you would never think of doing, but you do it w with your partner because of that. So this alerts you to, to how critical the role of partnership is. Who you select as a partner in life, no matter what you think, is going to influence you for better or for worse, monumentally. Think about just something very simple. How many people within a partnership, within a marriage, um, you know, might have been very promising human beings, but then they end up with someone who's abusive or someone who destroys their self-confidence or someone who demeans them or someone who degrades them. And they never realize their potential. They, in fact, don't recognize the person they were when they were, you know, dreamy teenagers, 16, 17 years old, dreaming of what they're going to do in the world, they don't even recognize who they've become anymore. That tells you volumes about what a partner does. A partner is so important. So if a partner shares with you the journey towards Allah, if a partner is on with you, shares with you your aspirations towards the Sirat al-Mustaqeem, the straight path. That helps you and helps you enormously because at the times that you might falter, sometimes just out of respect for your partner, you might not do something that's wrong. Sometimes just out of fear of confronting your partner, you might refrain from doing something wrong. It might give you that conscientious pause that makes you say, no, I, I can't do this. But if you are with the wrong partner, it actually might push you towards the exact opposite. This is why, subhanAllah, Allah repeatedly in the Quran reminds us of the importance of partnership of the importance of your zawj. And look, you know, it, it, it um, there is even, I'll tell you something that, you know, we, we talk to people at higher levels, but I, I don't think there's any harm in sharing, sharing it with you, even if, if I can't fully, you know, explore it. Partners, when they are not married, they're living together in haram, they have an aura. When they are married, they have a different aura. When they are partners that do good things together, they have a different aura. When they are partners that don't do good things together, they have yet a different aura. When they cheat on each other, they have an aura. I've seen partners 
walk in without one word, I know that one of them is cheating on the other, just from their aura. We form energy. We shape energy. We create and impact the world upon that we live in. In, in in direct, remarkable ways, the only reason is because most of us have lost our ability to sense these concrete energies that surround everything and everyone. And so having a blessed partner a partner in which you can build a beautiful aura will affect your children. In the same way that having a partnership in which the aura is horrible will affect your children. It will have a direct impact on your children. It will screw up your children. It will play with their mind and their, their heart and their psychology. I can't emphasize it the importance of it and that is why it just a lot of times when I see how people you know think it's just a matter of oh you know who I have a crush on no it's it's not who you have a crush on it, 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 you have to think do you want to build a family that is directed towards Allah or do you want to build a family that is drifting in contradictions and inconsistencies that has fundamental points of friction that sadly the children with their innate pure sense sense they the children pick up on it they they might not be able to 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 un understand it intellectually but but they pick up on it and you yourself will pick up on it the closer you get to Allah. I mean, it's subhanAllah, it, it, the closer you get to Allah, the more an unhealthy aura to your marital household will bother you, will, will, will really torment you. Um, Now, is it possible to, to start out with a partnership that is, let's say, messed up and, and, and fix it? Yes, absolutely, you can. But you, you, you need to work together. And that is why having understanding and mutual respect is very important because if we human beings, we thrive when our dignity is preserved. And when our dignity is taken away, we don't thrive. When, and, and we have an innate understanding of dignity as much as we deny it to ourselves. So when, when we feel honored and respected and dignified, we thrive. When we feel humiliated and degraded, we get lost and confused very quickly. And that is because Allah has dignified us. So dignity within a marriage is critical, very critical. Um, 
you should never allow, never allow for degradation or humiliation to invade your marriage because shayateen come in with that and they inhabit the space and they pollute the space. Um, along those lines, um, there's. I think this question is, is also related. Th um, thank you so much for the knowledge. My question is about how to express the surah in personal relationships. I am often drawn to deep connections with people going through a quote-unquote dark night of the soul um, whose gaze seems to be fixed on their hardships, probably because I've been there too. Is it possible to, cre to create or maintain close relationships with people who do basic good deeds but who seem to have a misery mindset. It is draining, but I don't want to abandon anybody. You know, um, I, I've been there um, through different periods in life. I, I, I've worked with people in, in very difficult situations, abused spouses, abused children, trafficked human beings, um, um, you know, on the one hand, you, you the, what you do is blessed because you're helping others. But on the other hand, you are inviting battles with some very evil things in existence. Um which means that you must strengthen yourself and you must be sensitive and sensitized to the levels of your own endurance so that you are able to conscientiously detach when it gets dangerous, because it does. I mean, I'll give you very concrete examples. One of the very common things that happens in the field of human trafficking uh, is that you work with people who have been very thoroughly abused. Um, and one of the very common things is that as you work to save people, um, it's, let's say, and, and most typically the scenario is the, the savior is the man, is a male, and the person being saved is a woman who has been trafficked and abused. And um, Now, I've seen this happen many times, where a man who starts out, he's going to save someone, develop an attachment, an unhealthy attachment with a, a woman or sometimes they go from one woman to another. Uh, and before they know it, they have an extramarital relationship. They're cheating on their wife with the, the person that, and against all ethical standards, I mean, forget professional ethical standards, but, but I'm talking about real life. And 
yeah, it's, you know, they, uh, you're my hero, you're my savior, they're spending a lot of time, they're both vulnerable, they both start sharing. You want the, the abused person to trust you, so you start sharing your own vulnerabilities. Here are the many ways that I am vulnerable, like you. Here I was also abused as a child, you know, and so on and so forth. Before they know it, they're, they're, they're together, and before they know it, they're doing something that is not right. And and one of the hardest things that professional um, uh, uh, a professional liability, just a, a danger of the trade, is to be be able to catch yourself and pull yourself out of the situation before it gets there. Um, so many people fail, or you know, so 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 many. That is an extreme example of the type of risks that, you know, playing the role of the savior, while it is a blessed thing, but if you will, in our language, shaitan is most cunning, and shaitan can come and do all types of things. How many imams start out counseling a woman in distress, and before you know it, They've gone haywire. I mean, they 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 have a secret relationship with this with this woman. In our Islamic context, they've married that woman in a secret marriage that is hidden from whoever that imam is married to. I know imams that have you know go f do secret marriages like they're, um, what is the expression? Um, you know, one after the other, one after the other. You know, have they were they did they start out like that? No, they didn't start out like that, but they they played the role of the savior, and they slipped from the role of an imam was a was a paternal loving role, a giving role, to the role of a consumer, and becoming part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Al-Hafizullah, only Allah protects. And it is deeply erroneous for any of us to think that we are above it all and that somehow we are immune. The only immune is Allah and the prophets. We human beings must be alert. And when, if we go wrong, we must be brave to confront ourselves and say, we've gone wrong, we're going to fix ourselves. So... My advice is in direct proportion to helping people work on your piety and the strength of your piety. Of course, I don't know who asked the question, but just a general advice um, and strengthen yourself so that if, may God forbid, darkness starts to set in and shaitan starts to seep in, you're able to catch yourself and you're able to correct your course. Um, next question. Um, Ayah 9 is usually understood as a physical barrier, so my Palestinian friends recite it at the border to prevent the IDF from seeing what's in their suitcases when they are crossing, to the point that the soldiers are even familiar with the Ayah. Can this Ayah truly be used that way? 
yeah, it, the, that, uh, the, 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 where that comes from is um, a, a hadith or a narrative, a riwayah, about um, that, uh, I actually alluded to it, that when the kuffar wanted to um, uh, harm the Prophet, والسلام, that in one report that the Prophet started reciting this ayah and then they couldn't see him and they couldn't hurt him. Um, Allahu alam, God knows best, but I don't believe it protects in that way. Now, I do know some of my even shiuch that I highly regard and highly respect would would be flabbergasted by what I just said because they, they have, I mean, I, I actually know a particular person who uh, um, Dawla, the security forces were, uh, uh, um, <laughs> they were looking for him to arrest him and then they actually went to his home and he was at the entrance of his building and they didn't see him and they left. And and he says I was reciting this ayah, so I think he was very strongly disagree with me. For for reasons theological reasons, I I don't believe it works that way, but I could be wrong. Allah alam, I could be wrong. Okay, so you guys, I'm going to try something new because you notice that there's closed captioning on the bottom of the screen. So um, we're experimenting with that a little bit. So I wanted to see if you guys, um, if someone, if from here, let's try if you can ask your question and then the professor can read it. Is that okay? Okay. We're going to try doing that. But I think if you speak more slowly, it'll be more um, accurate in terms of picking up what you're saying. And for, it doesn't like Arabic words, I'm pretty sure we've tried. So if there's another way to say it, like instead of a then, say call to prayer, um, I think we can cut around that. So if anyone has another question, feel free to raise your hand and then I can call on you. Okay, Serene, go ahead. Can you, can you see? I, I typed it out, so if you guys can't hear me, you'll see it. It's a really quick question about, is the example of the village that rejected the messengers a like a metaphor or just a just a story or um, is it an actual instance in history? Yeah, I mean they the um, the commentators there there is a debate that goes on whether it this refers to the city of Antioch and the Jesus sending three deputies to the city of Antioch to invite them to God. Uh, that's the only city that was discussed in the sources as a possible historical example of the three messengers. Um, but I would say that the majority say it's either a parable or a city that we were not told what it is or which city it is, and so it doesn't matter. Um, I tend to believe it is a parable. I, I don't believe it was Antioch, and I don't believe it's talking about Jesus and uh, three deputies. I, I think that 
is a parable, and there is a, a long discussion as to the significance of um, we sent two messengers and then we sent a third. Uh, whether this tells us something about the sunnah of what is a successful dawah and what is not a successful dawah, I mean, there's a there's a lot about that, but I I don't think it's really that critical. I I think it is enough to focus on the idea that the messengers go, and although there are three of them, they're 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 rejected. They fail. And they succeed with the margins of society. And although the marginal, the people on the margins, the disempowered, uh, end up suffering what, on earthly terms, is a defeat because they get killed, um, the ultimate conclusion from it is I wish my people knew. Uh, often, in order to leave the type of athar, the t- to leave the type of legacy that testifies against injustice, you have to be like Imam Hussein. You have to be martyred to leave a living testament that resonates through the ages as to what injustice is. You know, I wrote a whole book called Rebellion and Violence in Islamic Law, that's the academic title. The real ti- the real substance of that book is wh- why did Imam Hussein have to die? That's really what this book, what, what made me write this book. Um, why did the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ have to die? And it, it, that type of testament, because earthly life is not as important as the hereafter to God, is why God allowed the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ to die. And in order to make a point about the nature of despotism and the nature of injustice and what it does to people and how ugly it can become and what the author, the, the legacy of it is. Could it be that the three messengers are the human epistemology, the prophet, and the Quran? Do you think that this is a possibility? Oh, that that what what Cheyenne said is could could the three messengers be symbolic for the three elements of an epistemological framework? Uh, God, the prophet, and human beings. Um, that I never thought of that, but that's that's very profound, and it strikes me as correct. It strikes me as very reasonable because I'm just in my nature. I'd say I need to go and reflect on it and study it and pray on it, and then you know you could check with me. Uh, uh, you know, and then, but my my gut reaction is you're onto something really important here. Yeah. Okay. 
Sharif has a question. I should have, I should have asked that question. Yeah, you should have asked yours first. You have to follow that I one. I can't think clearly after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have to come a little closer. Oh, God. I know it's funny. Okay, okay, okay. Sharif is complaining that this question blew his mind. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm complaining, but... Okay. <laughs> um, um, so two two questions. It's a two part question. The first one is: Is anything ever? Is there anything in the tradition that talks about how when when this sort of first entered the ears of of the first Muslims, how they reacted to it, what it what what it did to them? And the second part of that question is. Really, because of my own reaction. I mean, the, I've read I've read the surah so many times. I've heard the surah talked about so many times. But the effect that it had on me today was was visceral. It was it was physical. It was terrifying, and um, and it's going to take me probably a very long time <laughs> to, to recover from it. Um, what you know, it's very it's very easy for me in my own nature to become overwhelmed. So, what what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> did, did you guys hear this? Can you can you repeat just in case people couldn't? Oh hear my that? God! How do how do I repeat sure. the tone? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes to this question. Yes. Did, did they understand? What well, they I think it shows up on the closed captioning, okay. so you guys can see it. But it's for the recording, for the sake of the recording. Oh no! It, we got it for the sake of the recording. Yeah, that's okay. I think we're okay. You guys got it, right? Did you guys hear what he was saying? Okay. Yeah, the yeah. the impact oh. of um, the impact of Surah Yasin. Yes, we we do have um, a lot in the tradition. Um, the, well, it was clear, I think, from just the reception of Surah Yasin that the earliest Muslims understood the message. Um, and understood the point, and the it it the um, that image of people Afghani for whom troubled. Um, I don't know if the, the the elite of Mecca mocked it, but because we have reports about their, their their attempts to mock it, but we also have reports about some of the uh, Meccans saying, being very so troubled by it that they walk away when the surah is recited the first time, and they're they're sort of rendered silent and they they storm out, and then some of them later on converted or even a day later and we have we have several narratives of that as well uh, and so it, it and it is also clear that from the very beginning surah yasin uh, we have these reports that Muslims start reciting it repeatedly in prayer you know reports that they were recited the entire surah would be recited in Aisha, would be recited in Maghrib, would be recited before they go to bed, or would they, they would talk about reciting it in, in the morning. It, it was clear that it... Uh, and then the surah, again, becomes at, at the forefront or at the heart and center 
after uh, uh, Abu Talib dies and after Khadija dies. Um, and, and so, and, and during that period, the three years where the Muslims are, are boycotted and are starving to death, and we have these reports about Muslims sitting in circles and reciting again and again Surah Yasin and Surah Al-Rahman. Um, so it's clear, it, it from that, we can we can surmise what type of effect it would have for them. Because at the time that they're literally being starved to death in the three years of or an organized boycott and the, the year of sadness, it, it becomes the mainstay of consoling them and comforting them. Um, so, yes, that, the, the impact... Uh, and I think that there are certain surahs like a Rahman, like a Yasin, um, like another surah that I was thinking about for today, Surah Al-Qasas, uh, that readied Muslims for the next stage, which literally changing the world. I mean, it, 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 we can't ignore that because these were people who were living negligible lives before the Qur'an. I mean, none of them would have been remembered. They would have existed and died like so many generations before them. And it is these sore, these, 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 this revelation that turned them into the people that we tell stories about today, the, the, the people who changed the face of the world. Okay, now as to what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you, you know, you remember that Allah tells you that if Allah would have willed, Allah would have blinded you so that you no longer even aspire towards the Salat al-Mustaqim. So one, you, you be very grateful that Allah has made you realize the importance of a Salat al-Mustaqim, because the fact that you're troubled by it, the fact that it shakes you, is in itself a blessing. There are so many people that could hear what they've heard tonight and not even be affected. Um, and, and, and and these are the people that I truly feel sorry for. They, they're just, nothing will touch them, and, and they're really in trouble. And it, it is... The, Think of what the surah says, that the said, the sudud, that, that comes and blinds, min khalfihim wa min aydihim, that it is the opposite, is that you must, must consistently reflect as to what is be, between your hands and what is behind you. What you've left in the past, what your legacy has been to date, and be determined that you're, you, whatever you don't like about your legacy, you must fix. You must leave a different legacy. It, to tell yourself, you know, Allah, I, I don't control my fate, but I can control my effort. You know my intention. You know I want to leave a legacy. I don't want to leave, you know, let's say that, because I know you're a poet, uh, so I want to leave the most 
the poetry that helps guide people. I want to write. You do your best effort to use the talents that Allah gave you for the legacy that you want for yourself. Whether that legacy exists or not, that's up to Allah. But Allah is going to treat you according to your intentions and to your efforts. And and so you think about your legacy and you think about what your present moment and that present moment, your dynamics and your interactions. Again, if there's something you don't like about the way you navigate your present moment, then vow with yourself to change it. You know, you, you have to also be kind to yourself that no change occurs overnight. And, I, and, and no change is, um, you know, radical change is often short-lived. It is, it is perseverance and persistence that works the best. And it, it, a small change that lasts is much bigger than a big change that doesn't last. And I mean even at the most minute level. So if you decide, for instance, you know, I, I, this is just a, an example. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray more. To, to add pray, extra prayers that you actually stick to, like even just one extra rakah every night is better than, you know, going through a phase in which you are praying 10 rakahs and then next, you know, you, you you go back to no, I'm not going to pray any. So it, it changed that last in in the language I've used. It changed that changes the energy around you and the aura around you because it's lasting is much better than a spurt of energy that evaporates. Um, but. The entire, I mean, remember, like when we first talked about Surah Al-Hadid, and then, you know, each surah, you'd say, oh my Lord, I see something. And you think, like, it's it's a, it's like, um, what, like, you know, a, a flood that hit you, right? Like, you know. We are we 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 are we've only done five surahs now. I mean, if people knew what is in in this Quran, it, you know, it it just the messages of of the Quran. There's a reason that this book changed the face of the world, and. The reason Muslims are in trouble today is because they lost their relationship to the Quran. And the simple fact that Allah has privileged you, because look at our numbers. We're a very small group in comparison. You know, uh, you compare us to any of the rock stars who have not huge numbers. We're a very small group. The, the fact that Allah said, okay, you know, I'm going to give you the type of circumstance and inspiration and inclination to be among this group that that is reintroduced to the power of this book 
That's a blessing. And to, you know, it's something that it's a gift. It's a true gift from Allah. You know, we always have to look at the way that Allah privileges us even when we don't privilege ourselves. Anyone, sorry, I, I just saw that there were some chats going back and forth, but I didn't have time to see if there was a question. Does anybody want to ask? Okay, Enjem, go ahead. Oh, I'm like talking and it's not even on. Okay. What did you say? <laughs> I just asked if anyone else has a question, so and I called on Enjem. We'll go Enjem and then Adam. So, like, um, um so I just wanted to ask. The bigger one is better. I've come across this issue a couple of times with. Um, Jews and Christians, but more often with Christians regarding um, the belief that the stories of many of those that we call prophets, but I'm not always sure they're prophets for them, um, that they, you know, say, well, you know, these were people who we couldn't use as examples because they, you know, they allege that they've done some very horrific uh, crimes and um, horrible things, um, crimes against humanity in a way, um, ugly things, you know, whether it's incest or um, adultery, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I was just trying to understand if you have any um, guidance or advice in regards to having a discussion that might help us in that regard. Um, I'm not sure. Like, it's, it's a very tough area, and sometimes I feel like I'm not well-equipped to be able to, and maybe it's not something you can convince them of, to say that these are lies that were made against these prophets. Oh, well, are you talking about uh, allegations of crimes against the Prophet Muhammad, or allegations of crimes against prophets like Moses and Solomon? Um yeah, and David, and Dawood, and the other, like, yeah, those prophets, like, even, I think, uh, um, uh, 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 there's no way you can read the Old Testament if you believe what the Old Testament says and not conclude that these were not worthy of being prophets. They, they've done horrible things. Um, I mean, David, <laughs> you know, he, he steals a wife and, and, and kills the husband and uh, or causes the husband to be killed. You know, you have incest, you have... And and I've got, got to tell you that um, um, the Old Testament really, uh, you know, the Old Testament looks at prophets as if they were kings, earthly kings, and and it, it's very confusing because. These people do horrible things, and yet, according to the Old Testament, 
God continues saying, you're the chosen people and you're blessed. So, you know, God is pleased with David, although David, um, you know, does this horrible thing and, 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 and then a man is described as a man of great wisdom when in fact he helps a, a, um, the um, he helps the son of David rape a woman and you know it just this so the genesis the source of all of this is the old testament now there, there is a there is a book uh, subhanallah i was just reading in it recently but Imam Qarafi, um, that was written addressing this exact precise issue, and he died in the 13th century AD, and where he, he basically says, you know, if you contrast between the way that the Quran talks about these prophets, um, and even deals with the same events that the Bible, the, the Bible recounts, it's a completely different perception. The Quran talks about these as moral examples who were thoroughly about morality and virtue, while the Old Testament often talks about them as people with very, at the least we could say, is confused morality, um, and a very and and it's a, a people on an ideological nationalistic mission. Most of the, their legacy is about the land of Palestine and stealing the land of Palestine from its inhabitants rather than anything else. It's as if God's religion is about giving them the land that belongs to others, and that's what God is all about. Um, so my often my my response to them is one when I'm like in a in. You know, I don't engage in a lot of interfaith discussions, partly because of this, because I, I just believe that I don't know how you can continue thinking that these prophets are ethical examples if you come at it from a Christian and a Jewish perspective. And the only way you can accept them as ethical um, examples is either you accept the Islamic narrative about these prophets or you accept what a lot of Jewish and Christian scholars said that well, you the Old Testament is more mythology than real revelation. If you accept the Old Testament as revelation, then you're in trouble. And and I don't think I don't know how you can get away with uh, get out of it. Um, and it's not revelation. Uh, uh, but a lot of Christian and and Jewish theologians, you know, say well, you know, the the Old Testament is not really revelation. It's more like uh, moral lessons mixed with a lot of confused mythology and a lot of the Jewish Talmudic writing is and a lot of the rabbinic tradition is an attempt to rehabilitate the apparent immorality that you see in the Old Testament um, by saying well you know sometimes God wants to tell us the moral lesson by showing us how immoral the prophets can become. So it's not that we should do what they do, but we should do opposite what they do. And if you've read enough in Jewish the, uh, theology, that, that's a very, very common theme. It's not that I'm supposed to imitate Moses or David. I'm supposed to, do, to, to look at what David did and do the opposite of it. 
and that's how I can be a good moral Jew. Okay, Adam? No, we can't hear you, sorry. Is anything going on? He's trying to get his mic to work. Oh, he also typed his question in the chat box. Oh, he did, thank you for telling me that. Okay, let me, Adam, let me see if I can pull it up. If you can't get your mic to work, it's fine. Uh, okay. Thank you again for another exhilarating and soul-enriching tafsir. With Muharram approaching and the martyrdom anniversary of Imam Hussein, um, alayhi salam, would, would you comment on what you personally believe is the best way we can commemorate and venerate the Imam and the Alul Bayt? I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because um, Cheyenne was trying to lay heavy on me and told me that, okay, Muharram is approaching. You have to give a class or you give halakas on uh, Imam Hussein and Al-Bayt. And so, you know, is this, is, this a, not, is this a sign being sent from Allah? Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm in trouble enough. I'm accused of everything on the face of earth, from endorsing, from supporting homosexuals to marrying uh, Christians and Jews, women, Muslim women marrying Christians and Jews to uh, being a cult. So now we're going to add the accusation of being a Shia to to everything, you know, and and. Uh, um, you know, I know that you have to speak the truth, and you know, but it just sometimes, sometimes all the attacks just get a bit too much. Uh, alhamdulillah, you know, alhamdulillah. Uh, the mart, the you know, the martyrdom of Imam Hussein. Let me just be very clear about this. Of all the historical events in Islamic history, the the the, the martyrdom of Imam Hussein is only second to the death of the Prophet uh, This was a monumental event in Islamic history, and it was the event that marked the end of the Khilafah, the end of Shura, the system of Shura, which is a big topic. Um, a lot of the battles that were fought among er, in early Islam, a lot of the rebellions were about the topic of Shura. Uh, there is a very nice book written by um, a Moroccan scholar. His name is Hisham Ja'it. It's called Fitna. It's in French and in Arabic. I don't know if it was translated to English. I don't think so, but I, I know that it it's, exists in, in French and Arabic, uh, where, where he talks about how what the rebellions up to the death of Imam Hussein had to do about Shura, and he does a very nice job tracing 
the debates among the supporters of Imam Hussein and Umayyads uh, about the issue of Shura. So the, the, the death of, the Imam, Hussein, of Imam Hussein was the end of the Khilafah, the end of Shura, and also the end of an ethical, political order in Islam. Islam after that becomes an empire. And Sharia, the Sharia of the state becomes an imperial Sharia rather than the Sharia of Jafar al-Sadiq, which was a very different oriented Sharia. Anyway, um, what I can tell you is that in the days when I, was, I had the health to, to do that, Bidayat um, Muharram, I would fast. Because in, in memory of Imam Hussein, and I will tell you what I continue to do, and that is on the uh, occasion of Muharram, I have a long established practice of reciting either Sahifa Sajadiyya or um, something from. Um, uh, where is my book? You know that? Huh? I can't hear you. What did you? Uh, can you uh, just which book? Uh, no, okay, that's the solution. Tell me. Oh yeah, Mafatih al-Jinan. So I I recite uh, now Sahifa Sajadi. I learned from Shayan that it's actually uh, a lot of these um, uh, duas are translated to English uh, for those who know how to use. Technology, <laughs> you can access them. So, a lot of it seems to have been translated to English or Sahifa Sajadiya. And I would very strongly advise that you just take the time and read as much of it, other than fasting, Bidayat Muharram, to recite through it. And because reciting through it is is out of respect and it enriches your soul and you feel the blessings and and in doing so you reflect upon what that event has meant and why Allah because nothing happens without Allah's will and why, why Allah allowed this to happen and Allah allowed this to happen to teach us a very painful lesson about the nature of power and how ugly power can be, and the nature of injustice, and how if we don't support the just, the unjust prevail, and control, and dominate. Um, that's the way you honor it. I mean, I, I again, this is going to get me in trouble, but uh, for me, all the, 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 the Madkhali and the Jami Wahhabis never tire of telling us it's haram to rebel against the ruler, even if the ruler is unjust. These are, you know, the, 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 the Wahhabis are fully funded by Saudiya and they have invaded Muslims in the West. You can't you know, the only attitude is that 
you don't get involved in anything political. You don't talk about injustice. You don't oppose injustice. You, all you do is you do your salah, your psalm, your you know your hijab, your beard, your um, nothing is more distasteful to me than the Jami and Madhari Wahhabis. And the reason they are so distasteful to me is because of the legacy of the Imam Hussein. If the grandson of the Prophet already exercised the fatwa, and the fatwa was to rebel against injustice, who are you to come and give me all this garbage that, that effectively is telling me the grandson of the Prophet was wrong? The arrogance of that position and then they told me, oh, well, you know, uh, Allah martyred the Imam al-Hussein to teach us that it's wrong to rebel. So you're telling me he gave up his life in vain? That's why Allah wanted to teach us? Yeah, that takes us to, you know, I sort of inadvertently started the lecture on Imam Hussein already, but, yeah, I don't know. Okay, so I, we're getting <coughs> close to the um, six-hour mark. <laughs> so I don't want to um, over, you know, um, overexert the sheikh. So I want to wind things down and um, just see if there was any other burning questions from anyone who has not asked a question yet. No, okay. Well, may, may Allah... Oh, bless all of you and may Allah facilitate the opportunity for us to have another one of these tafsirs soon inshallah inshallah um and uh, you know you're, you're all heroes for sticking it out this long okay so if there are no other I actually have one one question <laughs> want to make sure everyone else goes first oh uh, okay okay I have one it's not a fully formed question, but it's kind of like got me excited when you were talking about the difference between Al-Aqal Firqani and Al-Aqal Qurani. Yeah. And it reminded me of like the other, um, another surah where you talked about how there's the Quran of creation and the Quran of text. Yeah. And so um, I just, you know, was that the same? Well, I mean, anyway, I guess my question is like when people, when, you know, we all know people who are strong in their innate but not in their you know whether it's like if you're muslim maybe you're strong in the innate and not strong in your knowledge of the quran if you're non-muslim you find people who are very like um ethical but probably have no chance of being interested in the quran just i don't know if i thought i would just ask if you had any well no that. i mean the 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 quran of nature and the quran of the text is, is that's that that concept uh I mean, the 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 nexus or the possible connection is that al aql al furqani and al Quran um, uh, I'm blanking out um, the the Quran of nature that that whether creation. Oh, the Quran of creation um, whether they're uh, they overlap or yeah they do I mean al aql al furqani is is the uh, the the intellect 
as it exists in its most through its innate knowledge of right and wrong and which works in tandem with with the intellect as it leads the reads the text and absorbs the text and in fact according to someone like Shirazi that the two must aid each other and the two must exist in harmony and if they don't exist in harmony then we start having a lot of problems i'm not sure the the whether the, the issue of non-muslims um that's a different matter uh, because my non-muslims have what's missing from them is a very important part of that harmony and that's the Quran. And so, yes, they, they might be able to grasp a little bit of the Furqan or essential elements of the Furqan, al-Aql al-Furqani. But um, it's so prone to going all wrong because they're missing the divine, the, 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 the textual divine guidance. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your questions, but I mean, it, 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 I'm not sure. Like I said, it wasn't a fully formed question, but it just reinforces to me this notion, like the specialness and the rarity of this, of being exposed to this. Like you know, I was saying to these guys, I recently was listening to a video someone sent me, and Muslims in America are one percent of the population. So it's so like ridiculous when people are saying Muslims are trying to take over. We're not exactly poised with the numbers to take over anything. And then of that 1%, how few, you know, are even exposed. So it's like if the Quran tells you most of people are not going to get it, and if, does that mean most Muslims or most just humanity, I guess? No, I, I think it, it is as general, it, positions you to understand I don't I mean probably the, the Surah Yasin is, is well Surah Yasin is saying that most people will not believe mm. will not follow the Prophet I mean whether they're not going to be but we have you're, you're talking about is a more serious problem and that is now to what extent Muslims are really Muslims I mean if you're a Muslim but you have no real relationship with the Quran I mean you, you might encounter it every now and then you might know a few surahs, uh, but really, it, it, the Quran doesn't form your value system. It, it is not, you know, um, all I can say, there are periods in Islamic history that Muslims were in a much better shape than we are today. Um, when and especially when you have such an extreme minority such as Muslims in the West, if Muslims don't increase the number of people who are familiar with their real values and and the real message, they eventually become extinct. I mean, they, there have been succeeding generations of Muslims in the West that have all been fully assim assimilated and disappeared and in my view if things continue going on the way they're going on now 
30 years down the road, Islamophobia will have destroyed all the Muslims in the West. I mean, if we have another Trump that limits the immigration of Muslims to the West, and Europe is heading that way as well, and you have Islamophobia, which is very purposefully, very, very purposefully, wants Muslims to lose faith in their religion. That's the whole point of Islamophobia. What is the cumulative, cumulative effect of all of that 30 years down the road when we are not countering with anything that, that counts as anything? It, it's going to be utter devastation. I mean, th there's a very good reason that, you know, you have places that used to have Muslims and don't, doesn't have Muslims anymore. Crete, Cyprus, I mean, even the, the Greek part of Cyprus, Greece itself, you know, leave alone Andalusia or, um, no, it's very problematic. And, and that is why, if you remember, you know, when we went to and, and met with these rich people and then we had this rich woman who said, you know, tell me what, what, what you have to teach, what does it have to offer for our children? You know, I looked at her, I didn't say anything because she, the question was directed at you, but I thought she's insane. I mean, your children, if they're Muslim, their grandchildren are not going to be Muslim. Mm -hmm. Unless you support the right thing. Because the Islam of uh, Muhammad bin Zayed, the Islam of the Emirat, and the Islam of Saudi, the Madkhali Islam and the Jami Islam, and the cute Sufi Islam that uh, doesn't, has no real problem with any injustice or any social cause or any moral issue other than, you know, Salah and Psalm and, and so on. That's an Islam that's not going to survive. That's an Islam that's not going to win the hearts and minds of our children. It doesn't. They get tired of it and they think it's stupid and silly. Okay, well, thank you. On that note, <laughs> happy on note. that pleasant note, <laughs> well, we, we just need 20 more people or the equivalent of 20 people, you know, to donate and we can get another Quran halakha. So everybody, inshallah, full court press, please.